From the Folger Shakespeare Library, this is Shakespeare Unlimited. I'm Michael Whitmore, the Folger's director. When pressed to say what they love most about Shakespeare, it's fair to bet that most people would tell you it's Shakespeare's language. The beauty in his choice of words, the poetry, the familiar and famous phrases are what draw us in above all. So what does Shakespeare become when the words are replaced? This podcast contains one answer. Throughout 2016, to honor the 400th anniversary of Shakespeare's death, the Folger has sent the 1623 First Folio, the first collection of Shakespeare's plays, to all 50 states, Puerto Rico, and Washington, D.C. On each tour stop, host institutions have provided special programming designed to offer their own unique perspectives on Shakespeare's impact. One of the tour stops is right here in the Folger's hometown of Washington, D.C., and that stop provided an unusual opportunity for our podcast. During the entire month of October, the first folio is on display with a companion exhibition at Gallaudet University. Gallaudet, which has led advances in the education of deaf and hard of hearing students for more than 150 years, is the world's only university designed to be barrier-free for deaf and hard of hearing students. For as long as Gallaudet has been around, its students have been performing Shakespeare without spoken words. In presenting the first folio, Gallaudet has focused its exhibition, performances, and programs on the story of that challenge. The exhibition, First Folio, Eyes on Shakespeare, was curated by Gallaudet English professor Jill Bradbury. And in this podcast, she takes us on a tour of the exhibition and of the world of Shakespeare in sign language. We call this podcast, To See the Wonders of the World. Jill is interviewed by Neva Grant. I thought a good place to start would be to ask you this, um, which is on this podcast, We have done a lot of interviews about um, how different cultures have incorporated Shakespeare into their languages. And and we've talked about languages as disparate as Hindi and Arabic and Korean. And so we're here today to talk about American Sign Language, which on the face of it, you wouldn't initially think was highly translatable to Shakespeare. Actually, there are many layers of Shakespeare's meaning that ASL can illuminate in ways that spoken languages cannot. Um, Shakespeare was, you know, written to be performed, and Shakespeare's plays contain a lot of descriptive language because back in the 16th century, theaters typically didn't use very elaborate set designs. They didn't have the same light effects. So Shakespeare wrote those into his text to give people the description of the surroundings and the environment, and oftentimes overlaid that physical description with information about characters. Um, And so one thing that ASL is able to do is take that descriptive and that visual language and make it present in ways that spoken language isn't able to do. But at the same time, I think people who don't speak ASL assume that it is somehow a simplification of spoken English. And therefore, they wonder how it could be that something as rich as Shakespeare could translate to something that seems somehow simpler, even though it isn't necessarily. Right. Right. Um, So I can show you this example of an ASL poetic form called a one to 10 number story. 
And it's an example of how ASL has its own literary techniques, uh, its own poetic devices that can be used to parallel or express the rich metaphorical and figurative language of Shakespeare. And this is, and this is a video right here in the exhibit room that people can see when people come to see this exhibit. Yes. This is a video loop called 60 Years of Shakespeare in American Sign Language, and it has many examples of the kinds of poetic techniques that ASL translators can use to express the literary qualities of Shakespeare's language. And what I'm about to show you is um, a poem that was written by a high school student. And the, the poetic form is called um, ASL 1 to 10 number story. And the the point of the form is to tell a story using hand shapes that correlate to the hand shapes used to express the numbers 1 through 10. Wait, I'm sorry. I just heard you say hand shapes? What do you mean by hand shapes? So ASL signs are made up of several different components, and each contributes to the meaning of the sign. And those components include the hand shape, the actual shape of the hand. Um, you can have something like the A hand shape, or the flat O hand shape, or the V hand shape, which are sort of easy to imagine. Um, and then sort of, you have... Are those like building blocks almost? Yes, exactly. Um, and the other building blocks are orientation, which way the palm is facing, um, location on the body, and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. So when you talk about a um, ASL 1 to 10 number story, what you're talking about is finding a sign that looks like the number 1. You can all imagine what the number 1 looks like. And then a sign that uses the V shape, which is the number 2, and so on and so forth, all the way up to 10, which is your thumb pointing up and shaking. And so you say this is uh, a, a student who actually wrote a poem. Yes. Okay. And so the poem is summarizing the story of Romeo and Juliet using hand shapes that follow the sequence of the numbers 1 through 10. So initially what you can see is here uh, is the one hand shape, two people approaching each other. And so you have two fingers coming towards each other. Which are two number ones. Yes, this is two number ones. This is Romeo, this is Juliet. And they see each other and now you have the hand shape for two. And they look at each other and here you have this sort of uh, mimetic expression of two people looking at each other with their eyes. Right, these, right. and these, what, what I'm seeing is two V's. Uh, you've got one V in one hand and one V made up of the other hand. They're sort of swooning at each other, right? Right, 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 exactly. Um, and then eventually you see, as we go on in this story, you get to the end where the two lovers commit suicide and Alexandria, the student, signs with her two thumbs across her wrist, which looks like the slitting of the wrist. And so the thumb shape is the 10 and the slitting of the rest, wrist, and she ends with the hands resting against her chest as one does in um, a death pose. So it's a little bit like writing in verse where you have a formal structure, a pattern overlaying the meaning of the words and you have to follow the pattern but you also have to pick the signs and the words that tell a story, a story that makes sense. That's a really vivid example, and, and um, I think that will really help people understand exactly how Shakespeare is translated into ASL, but at the same time, there's all sorts of poetry and nuance. There is meter and rhythm and rhyme, um, and as well as archaic words that are all part of the Shakespeare experience. So you can't help but think that something will also be lost in translation.
Well, I think that's true of translating Shakespeare in any language, whether it's a sign language or a spoken language, because no two languages are exactly equivalent. And so when you translate Shakespeare into a different language, you're really translating him into a different cultural context and cultural background. And that's something that you, yes, you do maybe lose some of Shakespeare's original meanings, but you also gain some meanings that are specific to that context. And the same could also be said of performing Shakespeare. Every performance of Shakespeare's text is an interpretation of the text. Directors will choose to use visual elements to emphasize different parts of the text um, and give it their own particular meaning and interpretation. And that's another theme that we're very interested in this during this first folio exhibition month is looking at the ways in which visual choices, be they visual languages or the visuality of the theater, influences people's reading and interpretation and experience of Shakespeare. So what you just gave us with that poem was a summary of the plot of Romeo and Juliet. But in a situation where deaf people are going to a theater to see a, a full play performed in ASL, how would the actual poetry of Shakespeare's language unfold? There are, are many different approaches to expressing the poetic nature of Shakespeare's language. Um, and some ASL masters, which is what we call people who work on translation of English to ASL for um, theatrical content. Some um, ASL masters may prefer to deal with the language more simply, whereas others would like to give deaf people the full kind of experience of the complexity of Shakespeare's language. Um, so for example, you might use different poetic techniques like um, rhythm, the movement of the sign, uh, to express some of the sense of meter. You might use different repeated handshapes. And we talked about handshapes and the way that different signs can use the same handshape as a kind of building block. And in the translation, you might look for signs within a particular passage, within a soliloquy, for example. You might look for signs that have the same handshape so that you can suggest the connections between different signs and different parts of the speech. Um, you may have visual tropes that reoccur throughout the performance, through the entire performance. Um, there, are, there are ways within the language and then also ways within the staging that visual elements can give deaf audiences that full sense of the richness of Shakespeare's language. Seems like it would be a real challenge for the translator to do all this, or at least that they have a lot of choices, a lot of ways that this can go. Right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes, they do. And that's part of the artistic aspect of it, is taking Shakespeare's original text and turning it into a modern work of art. But I also think that, you know, again, the process is very similar to what directors and dramaturgers do with hearing productions of Shakespeare's work, because they have to go in and they have to make decisions about what parts of the texts they're going to cut and what parts they're going to emphasize. They have to work with the actors to make sure that the actors understand Shakespeare's language, um, which parts they should emphasize, which parts they should not emphasize. And so I think there are a lot of parallels between the translation process um, and working with the actors in an ASL production and the process of working with hearing actors and Shakespeare's text. So the reason we're here at this exhibit and the reason this exhibit was mounted is, of course, because you have a, a copy of the first folio, which was uh, donated, temporarily donated by the Folger Shakespeare Library just down the street. Um, so why don't we walk on over there and have a look. Sure. 
so here we are, uh, and here is a copy of this lovely first folio laid out in a case before us. And I know these have been exhibited all across the country this year, and whenever they're exhibited, they're always open to the same page, right? Yes, it is open to the soliloquy, to be or not to be, that is the question in Hamlet. And the Folger Library picked this particular page because this is one of the most iconic passages in Shakespeare. If you had to ask 100 people, what line from Shakespeare do you know, most of them would probably say to be or not to be. Right. And it gives us an opportunity to talk about how iconic verse can be translated into ASL. And it gives us an opportunity to talk about the kinds of choices that translators use when they translate verse into ASL. Because here, with to be or not to be, you have, again, you have options, right? Right. And one of the first challenges that comes up when translating to be or not to be into ASL is the fact that ASL doesn't actually have a to be verb. It's very similar to many languages, um, such as Hawaii and um, many Native American languages. They don't have a verb to express to be. And so immediately you have to decide, how are you going to handle that? Are you going to translate to be as to live, to die, or to exist? to not exist. Philosophically, there can be some differences between living and existing, between death and not existing. You know, it's a a question of emphasis. And And to have to make that decision is in some way to rob that particular phrase, in this example, of its nuance, of its um, ambivalence, in a way. Um, Because you have to make a decision. Because the translator has to make a decision. It's no longer the audience's decision. That's correct. That's correct. So, for example, one of the ways that I have seen people translate to be into ASL is simply to say to live, to die. Um, But I've also seen people use the uh, person identifier, which is the index finger pointing up, like a one, just pointing up. And that is, you know, sort of representing personhood or consciousness, um, human existence in the world. And so that's a different way that you can, you can choose a sign that will express a different sense of the phrase to be or not to be. Can you do me a favor? Let's just try an experiment. Let's just, we all know to be or not to be, that is the question. Could you just sign that and sort of talk me through what you're doing, just sort of as you did over there with the poem, and just sign it and sort of explain what you're doing, and maybe you can do two different versions, just to get a sense of the variety. Is that... Would that be too tricky, or do you think you could do that? I can do that. Okay, so one approach to translating to be or not to be in ASL would be to take it simply as a question of to exist or not to exist, to to live or to die. And so if we were to sign to live, we would make the A hand shape, which is fingers down, thumb up. Mm -hmm. And we would pull them gently upwards, both each on one side of our chest and pull them gently upwards towards our shoulders. Right. It's sort of the hand shape that someone would use if they were cinching their knapsack on their back to make it tighter. Yes. And then to die, we'd want to shift our bodies slightly, shift our shoulders slightly so that we are facing a little bit different direction than we were when we started signing originally. And this shows the difference is that there's a choice being made. So we push our shoulders, turn our shoulders to the left, turn our shoulders to the right. We're expressing a contrast, uh, a choice to be made. And die would be two hands 
in opposite orientations, one open hand facing up, one with the palm down, and then we would turn them opposite each other. Okay, the hands are flat like you're making pizza dough, except one is up facing the sky and one is down facing the ground. And so grammatically, the shift of the body is very important because that gives additional information to the viewer. It's not just the handshape. If I stood here and did the handshape like this, it wouldn't really have that much meaning. But the fact that I'm shifting my body when I assign live, die is suggesting the conflict, the, the choice that has to be made, the, the urgency of the choice that needs to be made that Hamlet is confronting in this soliloquy. Um, what's an example of another interpretation? In the example I just gave you, the emphasis was on the choice to live or to die. And in this other version, which I can show you or you can see in our videotape that is focused on the to be or not to be soliloquy, it's a more stripped down translation where the actor simply stands and he puts one hand out and looks at it. And again, we have the upwards, the hand shape, and then he puts his other hand out and looks at it. And then he looks at the audience and moves his hands back and forth to suggest the choice. Both hands are flat and open, as if the person might be catching a small ball that's being hurled from above. And in, so one hand is no longer down. Both hands are up and flat. It's almost like a, I don't know, an entreaty or a, a sort of a look of, I don't know, supplication or something like that. Oh, and you, maybe you're holding two things and you're trying to decide between them. And you're at the store and you're holding two things and I'm thinking, which one do I want, right? And what's interesting about this is that it takes out all of the you know, questions about existence and boils down the passage to there's a choice to be made. And then the actor goes in on to perform the soliloquy and provide the context that helps us understand what those choices are. But the immediate question that is presenting is a choice, one way or the other, which do I go? So you've just given us two examples, um, but I'm assuming there are many, many others, right? Yes, there are many different ways to translate to be or not to be into ASL and into other languages as well. And so this video that is a part of our component is focused on the to be or not to be soliloquy and provides several different translations of the passage from different periods of time in American Sign Language. And it also contains 15 translations of to be or not to be in international sign languages. So even people who don't know any sign language are able to watch the videos and pick up on things that are interesting and enrich their understanding of both Shakespeare and Shakespeare in sign language. So what else should we take a look at while we're here? Well, one of the things that we wanted to educate people about was the long history of Shakespeare in ASL and at Gallaudet University. And so we have a section of the exhibit that contains panels with information about early Shakespearean productions um, at Gallaudet and elsewhere in the deaf community. Well, before we head over to the next spot, how old is Gallaudet? Gallaudet was founded in 1864. Okay. And I have a feeling that the history of Shakespeare performance goes back just about as far. Almost as far, yes, indeed. The earliest mention that we have been able to find of Shakespeare at Gallaudet dates back to 1882. Mm -hmm. And this is, uh, there's a article in the newspaper that talks about a Gallaudet student performing a section of 
as you like it at a benefit for a local Washington, D.C. charity. This is written up in the newspaper. And there are mentions of Gallaudet students performing at benefits um, and providing literary entertainments for people in Washington, D.C. almost since, I think, 1866 was the earliest when they first started popping up. And they show up quite regularly in the um, late 19th century newspapers. And so it's clear that ASL performance was very popular in the D.C. area and appreciated by people. And it sounds like from what you're saying, the students were really active in the community, performing and probably doing other things as well. They were, and you have to remember too that in the 19th century, deaf education was still very new. This concept that um, deaf people could be educated and be, could become um, productive members of society um, if they were taught through sign language. And so people from D.C. with no connection to the university would come over to campus for the graduation ceremonies to you know, see the students um, do their commencement exercises in sign language. All right, so what did you want to show us over here? And so what we have in the display case here is the uh, program from the earliest performance of Shakespeare at Gallaudet. This is a program for an evening of dramatic entertainment from 1882. It has two components. One is shadow pantomime, and the other is open pantomime. And under shadow pantomime, you see various acts from Julius Caesar being performed. Shadow pantomime. Tell us what that is. Um, so the concept is that you would have a screen of some type, maybe a sheet, and behind that, bright lights projecting, and then the actors would perform in front of the lights. So what the audiences would see would be the shadows of the performers. It's clear that in the shadow pantomime, the actors weren't actually using ASL, but they were using more of a gesture and mimetic um, style to act out the plays. Hmm. And on the open pantomime, you see the declamation of all the worlds of stage from As You Like It. And that was probably performed in sign language as opposed to the gesture and mime of the shadow pantomime. What's incredible about what you just said is that Shakespeare was being performed in ASL from a very early time. I mean, yes. this, was, this, was, this is not some modern development. I mean, this, was, this goes back almost as far as the school does. Yes, and for all we know, it could go back even further. There has not been very much research done on um, Shakespearean productions at the state schools for the deaf, for example. And the American Store for the Deaf was founded in the 1840s, I believe. So it's quite possible that Shakespeare in ASL in America goes back even further than 1884. It's probably obvious to you that I don't speak ASL. Um, but I did have um, an experience um, that made me realize just how vivid and how expressive sign language can be because I went to see a performance of A Midsummer Night's Dream at the Synetic Theater Company, which is uh, a theater company across the river from here in Arlington, Virginia. And they, um, you're probably familiar with them. Yes, I'm a Susan ticket holder. <laughs> so, uh, so then you know that they do uh, all of their work, and a lot of what they do is Shakespeare, but they do it with pantomime um, and dance and a, a form of sign. I, it's not ASL, but it, you know, it's, it's very expressive 
gesturing. And so I, I recently went to see um, their version of A Midsummer Night's Dream, and I've probably seen a dozen versions of the play. I have never understood it or felt it in the way I did when I saw their version. I mean, they did an amazing version, but it makes me realize that while some people might argue something is lost in translation, um, I think the point you've been making here all afternoon is something is also really gained, or something can be gained when you translate Shakespeare into ASL. Synetic is one of our artistic partners in the first folio month at Gallaudet University. So they've been involved with us in various ways um, and parts of our programming. And I think what Synetic and Shakespeare and ASL have in common is this recognition of the power of the visual and the power of the body to express Shakespeare's meaning. And that is something that deaf people have recognized for a very long time. Um, there's a poem that was written in the 1760s by a deaf man who went to see a performance of Shakespeare by David Garrick, the Shakespearean actor of the 18th century. And in the poem, the author mentioned that he didn't need to hear Shakespeare's words. He didn't need to be able to hear because Garrick's body and his facial expressions and his performance expressed the meaning of Shakespeare's words so well. Through the power of the body, you could have a deeper understanding of Shakespeare's meanings and his words than you could simply through sound alone. And I think that's one of the things that we really want to express and help people to understand through our first polio programming month. I mean, you must be really proud of this exhibit. I do. I want to live here. I want to be in here all the time and just admire it. No. Um, this was a very special project for me because as an academic, you don't often have the opportunity to put together a scholarly work that many people will experience and many people will learn from. And I feel that this is a really unique opportunity for me in my career. And I'm very grateful for the Folger for providing that opportunity for not only me, but for many people across the country. This was such a great tour. Thank you so much. Thank you for coming to campus. Jill Bradbury is a professor in the English department at Gallaudet University in Washington, D.C. Gallaudet's exhibition, The First Folio, Eyes on Shakespeare, runs through the end of October 2016. Jill was interviewed by Neva Grant. To See the Wonders of the World was produced by Richard Paul. Garland Scott is the associate producer. It was edited by Gail Kern-Pastor and Esther Farrington. We had help from Caitlin Luna, Gallaudet's Coordinator of Media and Public Relations. Jill Bradbury's sign language interpreter during the interview was L'Oreal Dutton. Shakespeare Unlimited comes to you from the Folger Shakespeare Library. Home to the world's largest Shakespeare collection, the Folger is dedicated to advancing knowledge in the arts. You can find more about the Folger at our website, folger.edu. For the Folger Shakespeare Library, I'm Folger Director Michael Whitmore.